Hey everybody, welcome to part five of this message series on wisdom. It's called Elephant Eating Ants because there's a passage in Proverbs 6, 6 that reads, Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. So really our goal for this collection of talks is to become wise. And there's a phrase in American culture that goes, how does an ant eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Likewise, there's a phrase in Christianity that says, how does a Christian live by faith? One step at a time. For this exercise on wisdom this morning, I want us to go to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, some of you, this will be the only exercise you get because of quarantine life. So if you have your analog Bible, I would encourage you to grab it and physically turn with me to Ephesians. It's towards the back of your Bible, a place called the New Testament. A fellow named Paul is who wrote this. So if you're new to the whole Bible thing, Paul wrote roughly two-thirds of your New Testament. So he's generally a good person to listen to. But you need the big number five, little number 15. It reads, So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Somebody type wise in the chat so I know you're listening. Don't live like fools, but live like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, we pray that you would speak to us now. Give us something important, special, and life-giving in these moments we share together. We're gathered on this medium of technology to hear from you. And we're believing great things will come as you speak. Lead us, guide us, direct us, and change us. You've promised wisdom to those who ask. We're asking for that now. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Conventional wisdom, that's the title of my message. It's arguably a timely conversation because most of the decisions you make are based on conventional wisdom. Think about it. You're refinancing the house, experts told you now is a good time. Eating certain foods while avoiding others, the conventional wisdom is that gluten is bad and carbs are bad, but nobody actually knows what gluten even is. Dietary specialists have told you that uh, they're wrong and they've influenced your thinking. Driving five over, conventional wisdom says, cops won't pull you over, you're fine. Going to college, Everybody knows you have to go to college after high school in order to get a good job. That's the conventional wisdom. Except I know a guy who dropped out of high school and is making upwards of $100 an hour right now, machining airplane parts. So I'm sure you can think of other examples. The point is, most of the conclusions that you draw, most of the decisions that you make are based on conventional wisdom. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem is, given enough time, conventional wisdom is often proved wrong. Because conventional wisdom said nobody would rent movies from a vending machine until Redbox put Blockbuster out of business. 
And conventional wisdom says money can't buy happiness, except it can buy shoes. And that's basically the same thing. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe this is a better example. Conventional wisdom used to say that bloodletting was how you should cure disease. Cut the person open, let some of their blood out, they'd get better. Conventional wisdom used to say that washing your hands or medical instruments before surgery was unadvised. Seriously, look it up. Prior to the 1880s, they believed changing bandages and washing wounds and sterilizing surgical devices let, quote, bad air in, and that's what caused infection. And so the doctors during the Civil War and prior to the Civil War, they wouldn't wash their hands, they wouldn't wash their saws, they wouldn't wash their patients' you know, wounds, and nowadays it sounds barbaric. Oh, of course we know you're supposed to sterilize everything, but for literally thousands of years, there was no germ theory. There was no knowledge of bacterial infection. Matter of fact, when President James Garfield was shot in 1881, the prevailing idea... The conventional wisdom of the day, as it were, was just get the bullet out. Bullets are bad. Get them out. So it's not that bacteria causes harm. It's that bullets do. And one day, James Garfield is at a train station with some members of his cabinet. They're on their way to go see James's wife, who's recovering from malaria away from Washington, D.C. And coincidentally, one of the folks that's on his cabinet that was with him that day was Robert Todd Lincoln. That would be the son of Abraham Lincoln. And when Garfield is shot, Lincoln goes to fetch the only man he knew. Dr. Dr. Bliss. Oh, I didn't stutter. His first name was Doctor. In a desire to speak his career into existence prophetically, perhaps his parents named him Doctor. The same reason Laura and I named our son Layton. His real name is NBA. That's not true. But the reason Bob Todd even knew who Dr. Doctor was is because D.B. is who tried to treat his father, Abraham Lincoln, unsuccessfully. Which, side note, this is fascinating. Robert Todd Lincoln was alive when his father was shot. He was present the moment that James Garfield was shot. And 20 years later, he would be there when William McKinley was assassinated. Which means if you're president and you see Robert Todd Lincoln around... It's going to be a bad day. It's like seeing a black cat or somebody at the store when you don't want to see them. And you turn down the aisle and you're like, whoop, there's Robert Todd. I ain't going down that aisle, but I uh, hope he didn't see me. Nonetheless, Dr. Bliss believed the conventional wisdom of infectious healing. The dirtier the wounds, the better. So starting on the floor of the train station, Dr. Bliss inserts his finger into the wound of Garfield and begins fishing around trying to find the bullet. He repeatedly did so for the next two months with unwashed instruments and he never changed the bandages and Garfield would eventually die not because of the gunshot wound but because of blood poisoning. And the worst part is this was all completely avoidable. Not only because the bullets had lodged themselves in some fatty tissue that was of no grave danger, and the heat from the bullets actually cauterized the wounds, so they were completely survivable, but this was all avoidable because 16 years earlier, 
16 years earlier, a guy named Dr. Joseph Lister, the same Dr. Lister who uh, introduced the world to Listerine, Dr. Lister had proven infection was caused by introduced bacteria. He had demonstrated that sterilization would drastically reduce surgical deaths. But he was largely heralded as a quack because conventional wisdom won the day and lost a lot of lives, which this is somewhat ironic. The phrase ignorance is bliss. It's argued it came from a news article written about Dr. Bliss and this very incident. You can read all this in a super interesting book called Destiny of the Republic by Candace Millard. Highly recommend it. But here's what I'm trying to get you to consider. Conventional wisdom is often just popular thinking. It's why we need to pay attention to what God says is important, not what the world says is important. Jot that down if you're taking notes. We need to pay attention to what God says is important, not what the world says is important. I'm not even going to touch the conventional wisdom of lockdowns and quarantine and COVID and vaccinations. Instead, I'll point you to Jesus, because what's Jesus do? And one of the very first messages that he preaches, he can corrects and confronts the conventional wisdom of the day, right? You've heard that it was said, but I tell you... And it's why, in his letter to this church at Ephesus, Paul writes, Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. I wonder, how much thought are you giving your life on any given day? How much are you just following the conventional wisdom of the world and not considering what God wants? So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools. Live like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. You're probably asking yourself, well, what's the Lord want me to do? I would do it if he would just tell me, except that's part of the fun of life, figuring out exactly what God wants you to do. Now, in fairness, Paul does tell us some ways we can investigate some of the things that the Lord will want us to do. But before we chat about that, let's look at the very next sentence, because it's kind of weird. Look what he says. He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What? That took a rather unexpected turn. Why in the world does Paul bring up getting drunk right after he asks us to consider being careful how we live? Wouldn't it make more sense to write, don't act thoughtlessly, understand what the Lord wants you to do, and he doesn't want you to kill anybody, he doesn't want you to punch babies or kick animals. What? Why would he say, understand the Lord wants, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit? Uh, by the way, most commentaries agree that this is very surprising. Yet the answer to the question is there must be some way in which being drunk is like being filled with the Spirit. There must be some way in which it's alike, and there must be some way in which it's not alike, or there would be no need for a warning and comparison. If there wasn't some similarity and dissimilarity, there would be no warrant for the warning. So let's answer the question. How are being drunk and being filled with the Spirit both alike and unalike? Here's how it's alike. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2, 
on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples and they began to boldly preach the word of God and they began to talk about God and his wonders and about the gospel and Jesus and forgiveness and how in order to be saved it had nothing to do with keeping the law and the rules but rather trusting in Jesus which just for the record that's still true today doesn't matter what you've done matters what Jesus has done, but the apostles taught this message with such boldness and joy and with such clear fluency and clarity that it so impressed the crowd. They said, what? These guys are drunk. Why did they think that? Because these men were so brave and so happy. The only time people saw this braveness and this sort of happiness are when people are drunk. That's the reason why they looked at the disciples and said, man, these guys are sauced because alcohol gets rid of your inhibitions. The things you're afraid of, they sort of melt away. Therefore, there's a braveness and cheerfulness that isn't there very often if you're sober. Now, today we know, and science has proven, that alcohol diminishes brain function. It diminishes brain ability, so a drunk person sees less of reality than they did before. The things you were afraid of, the things that were inhibiting you, they fade away because you're actually dumber than you were before. That's why you're brave and happy, because alcohol makes you that way by depressing your brain and showing you less of reality. However, the fullness of the Holy Spirit operates in exactly the opposite way. God reveals to you his reality, which makes you brave and joyful and able to accomplish all that he sets before you. It's why we need to pay attention to what God says is important, not what the world says is important. I'll give you a perfect example of this. Elisha, the great prophet in 2 Kings chapter 6, was in the city with his servant. The city was surrounded by a vast number of enemy troops. It was an overwhelming force. They were going to come upon this city the next day. The enemies were. But Elisha wasn't the least bit nervous about that. Elisha had confidence. Elisha had courage. Elisha had joy. Yet his servant, on the other hand, this brother was a nervous wreck. He's freaking out. He's terrified. He says, how can you act like this, Elisha? Now, Elisha could have done any number of things to help his servant get through the night and the next day when these enemies showed up. One is, he could have given him a bottle of alcohol, and he said, hey, go get drunk. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's one option, because it would have shown him less of reality, and it would have enabled him, perhaps, to face the future with a little more courage and a little more joy. But that's not what he did. What did he do? He prayed to God, and he said, O Lord, open his eyes. Show him all of reality, not just the material, but the spiritual as well. And God does. God answers Elisha's prayer. He opens his eyes, and in a very famous text, this servant sees chariots of fire on the mountains around the city. In other words, he saw the hosts of God. He saw angels, he saw the supernatural world, and he began to realize God is real, and God is there, and God is working, and God cares, and God does have power, and he receives that fullness of the Holy Spirit. The fullness of the Spirit is not giving you joy and courage by showing you less of reality, 
but rather by showing you more of it. God is showing you his reality and all he wants to do through you. See, the Holy Spirit's job is to take all these things that God is doing and all the things that God has done in Christ and all the things that Christ has done in you and for you and sort of communicate these things to you to make them so true in the reason of your mind and so true in the emotions of your heart that you'll become so in tune with God that he'll become the controlling power in your life. The Holy Spirit makes the truth of God so dominant in your soul that the things that used to deflate you, they don't deflate you. The things that used to cause you to live in fear, they no longer make you afraid. And the things that used to cause you artificial happiness no longer do. And instead you get joy because of you seeing all of reality. Alcohol is a depressant. It gets rid of negative thoughts. It gets rid of fears by depressing your brain and showing you less of reality. But the fullness of the Spirit is a stimulant. It challenges conventional wisdom by giving you more of reality. So sure, we can be sad, but we're never unhappy. Why? Because we know God's got this. We see chariots of fire surrounding the hills around us. It's why we can do what verse 20 says and give thanks for everything. Everything? Everything. See, apparently, according to Paul, giving thanks presupposes a deep underlying faith that God can produce good out of even the most unpromising situation. And that thankfulness, therefore, can be felt in our day-to-day life because of the confident hope that we have in some wonderful way God will make even disaster and suffering an occasion for later blessing. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. And that's why we need to pay attention to what God says is important, not what the world says is important, so that we can give thanks for everything. Now, I need to back up a little bit because I need to try and answer the question I posed earlier, which was, how do I know I'm doing what the Lord wants me to do? Paul wrote in verse 17, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. So again, how do we know what the Lord wants us to do? Well, aside from being filled with his Holy Spirit, Paul gives us some practical day-to-day advice. Look at the very beginning of chapter 5. It reads, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, There's our word again, everything, give thanks to God for everything, imitate God in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Have you ever been doing something and you thought to yourself, I wonder if God would be doing this? Well, you should wonder that. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Because of that sacrifice, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes. Uh-oh, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, 
worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. How many times have you said to yourself, ah, this isn't that big of a deal. I can afford this. I know I'm getting into tremendous debt here, but I'm going to use this for God's glory. A greedy person is worshiping the things of this world. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Write this down. Conventional wisdom says your greed will make you happy. God's wisdom says his spirit will make you joyful. Conventional wisdom says your greed will make you happy. God's wisdom says his spirit will make you joyful. Why are you settling for happiness when you could have eternal joy? I love the first line of that song we sang last week, Graves into Gardens. Maybe I should play that video at the end of this. But it goes, I searched the world and it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. And if you've lived any duration of time, you know that's true. It's never enough. So here's what I want you thinking about and trying to process in your mind this week. Am I following myself to be happy, or am I following God to be joyful? When you want to buy that next thing, ask yourself, am I doing this for some kind of emotional response? Am I doing this because this is what I want, or am I doing this because I'm imitating God, and this is what He wants? When you're tempted to watch that show, or message that person, or visit that website? Are you participating in that activity because of conventional wisdom says, oh, it's not that big of a deal? Maybe it's not. Maybe it is because your soul can't handle it the way somebody else's can. See, when, when I was trying to wrestle with how to end this message, I was really struggling with how to do it because by and large, I like to give you practical things like next steps forward on how your Monday can look different because you came to church on Sunday. But at the end of the day, I feel like most of you already know what you're supposed to do. You've just convinced yourself that you're the exception to the rule. Uh, Like you know that you hear from God and, and you find the fullness of his spirit by praying and reading his word. And, and having a group of people around you who can challenge you and really speak to you about the things that you're doing in the context of a life-giving relationship. But what you're doing, according to Paul, is fooling yourself. And you're excusing your sin. Uh, because you don't take those things very seriously. And so here, let me do this real fast. Pay attention. Every bad decision you've made, and every bad decision that somebody else has made that has hurt you, all of those decisions were made because somebody thought, this will make me happy, right? And conventional wisdom says, follow your heart, do what makes you happy. But the wisdom of God says, this isn't about you, this is about him. It's why we have to listen to what God says is important, not what the world says is important. And the primary thing that God says is important is, is 
your soul. It's why the most unselfish thing that you can do is take care of your soul. It's also why you need Jesus. It's why you need to trust Him and follow Him and pursue Him. It's why Paul writes, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. See, most of the battles that you fight in this life are going to be battles of your mind. But what's Jesus come and say in John 10.10? The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you have life and that you might have it to the full. The single greatest piece of advice that I can give you, the best wisdom I know to offer you, and the easiest next step that I can try and impart to you, which I know I've said this before, but write this down and then we're done. Any process that doesn't start with God ends with disappointment. Any process that doesn't start with God ends with disappointment. You need to ask yourself, is God in this? Am I imitating God? Because I'm his child. Is is God going to lead me to joy out of this? Or is this some sort of temporary emotional happiness? You need to ask God for his discernment. Because any process that doesn't start with God ends with disappointment. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the wisdom that is contained within its pages. God, we're asking again now for you to do what only you can do and fill us up with your Holy Spirit. Help us really be mindful of the things that you would want us to do. Help us consider the things that we're currently doing and try and answer, is this what God would have me to do? God, only you can lead us, only you can guide us, only you can direct us. But we also know that you do that through other people. And so help bring in the good relationships that we need in our life so that people can help guide us, help direct us, help us find wisdom in other people, help us find wisdom in your word, help us hear from you in prayer. God, it's such a weird time for us in our nation. And as we continue to explore what lockdowns and quarantines need to look like, God, we're just asking you to not live us let us live in a, a spirit of fear, but one of courage and strength, because we know that you're going to work all things together for good for those who love you or are called according to your purpose. And so, God, for those who do know you, we again just ask you for courage and strength and wisdom. For those who don't know you, God, I'm praying that you do something powerful right now. And help them understand that they've been chasing these things of life. They've been chasing their own happiness. And it hasn't taken them to the place that they even want to be. God, we know that forgiveness is only found through you and your son, Jesus Christ, and what he did on that cross. And so, God, I'm just asking you now to speak to those people and allow them to come to the place in their life where they say, God, I need you. I need your forgiveness. Please forgive my sin. Make me new. God, let us leave this service today understanding that we have been saved, that we are going to start pursuing you wholeheartedly. 
and imitating your ways. And any process that doesn't start with you will end in disappointment. God, encourage us, strengthen us, give us that joy you've promised. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.